Welcome to the Cheyenne Vineyard Podcast, bringing you a message of hope for your everyday world. If you'd like to contact us, contact us at info at CheyenneVineyard.com. You can also find out more information about the Cheyenne Vineyard Church at CheyenneVineyard.com. Thank you and enjoy today's podcast. All right. Well, I think what we're going to do at this point is um, minister to Rose and Mark, as we said we would. So I trust that some of you have a few things to share with them. Um, you two have a preference as to who goes first? Ladies first, maybe. Mark is being the gentleman and pointing to you, Rose. So um, anyone who has something to encourage Rose with or minister to her with, if you want to come up. We have been recording these, so it helps if you're on the mic, because then we can, and Bev has actually been making some progress toward getting these um, into a format where we can share them with you. Her hope is that we can get them onto a CD and give those who are being ministered to their own CD. Um, So, I know we haven't been doing real well with getting podcast downloaded every week or uploaded or whatever the proper terminology is until I'm not the one doing it um, but anyway we're trying to work on these where we've been ministering to each other um, so who has a word for Rose this morning Rose what I received is that those things that you've been asking the Lord in your prayer closet he will bring them to fruition they will come to pass Mine is similar. Um, God's opening a door, and he's just saying, step in. It's right there. Amen. Billy? Rose, you are such uh, an inspiration and have been for many years now. Um especially this last week, and I didn't even know we were supposed to be (laughs) consulting the Lord on things he wanted us to share, but uh, um, life is uh, hectic sometimes. We spend a lot of time going because that's what we need to do. But he wants rest for you. And he wants refreshment. And as everybody else, he wants he wants to open a door for you. Many doors. Being a wife and a mother. And he understands. So I just speak peace to your heart with the knowledge of knowing that he's got it in his hands. And uh, never underestimate the presence of the Lord in your children. Yeah, Rose, uh, God's radiance just shines through you. 
the verse I got this week was Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over, and his glory will be seen upon you. Yeah, let that, let that light shine. No matter what's going on, what circumstances, situations, family life, just let that light shine. I have uh, just a few verses I wanted to share with you, Rose. The word I got for you is faithful. So I started looking at what the word says about faithful. And I found a, a verse that I think describes you very well. In 3 John verse 5 says, Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers. And I see that in you. In Hebrews 6.10, God says, God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. So God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love. You know, in Luke 16.10, the first part of the verse says, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And there are two things I want to share with you that have to do with your future reward. I mean, God's pleased with you now and is rewarding you now for your faithfulness. But as we look to the fulfillment of prophecy and the coming of Jesus, in Revelation chapter 17, verse 12 through 14, it says, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings. Listen to this. And those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. So I think the Lord's saying you're going to qualify to be part of those troops. In Luke 19, 17, this I think has to do with the millennial kingdom when Jesus comes back and physically reigns on planet earth and sets up his thousand-year reign. It says, he said to him, well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. So we need to remember that, as Mike Bickle says, our life, whether it's 70, 80 years or whatever it is, is an internship for the millennial kingdom. So your faithfulness will be richly rewarded. I'm looking. Anybody else who has something that wants to share? The word I got was friend, but most of all, it's a friend of God. And out of the friend of God comes a lot of friends 
around. Amen. I got um, peace. I guess just going to cause a spirit of peace over your life like you haven't experienced before. And so I pray that in your life and into everything that you're doing right now. Amen. Um, that may the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory by Jesus Christ, who has established, strengthened, and settled you in all things, settled you in all things. Uh, this is the true grace of God in which you stand. So it's the grace of God that's established, strengthened, and settled you right now. Totally settled. Well, the word I got is joy. And, of course, it's obvious when we know Rose, but... I can see a fountain, and there's only one pipe in the fountain, but the joy is coming up out of this fountain, and it's going everywhere. It's like an umbrella, and it's hitting everybody around it. So the joy that you have is going to be contagious, and it's going to spread to everywhere. Um, the thing that I keep getting from you, for you uh, is that you don't get to be sidelined anytime soon. Put on your running shoes and uh, step up your game. Don't be thinking that you're cruising because that's not what's happening now. You, you know, you really have, to whom much has been given, much is required. And it doesn't really matter what age we are or what state of the game we're in. You know, you get to step up your game. And that's what I feel like he's really calling you to that um, you've been kind of hiding. You do what you do because everything that everybody said is true about you. You know, that you are all those things. But um, you, it's time for you to just step up and stop hiding and stop uh, just cruising. You know, be more proactive about what he wants you to do because to him much has been given, much is required. And you're my inspiration, so I'm right behind you. What I'm getting is I feel like God's settling some things in your life because he's getting ready to unsettle you. <laughs> so so where, you, where you've been comfortable in your walk with the Lord, he's getting ready to shake that up because he's got so much more for you to do. So he, he, things that were a distraction before, those are being settled. Those are being put away so that he can unsettle you and get you going and doing what he wants you to do. Well, interesting word. Praise God. 
Mic's still available. Anybody else have something? Okay. You're welcome. Praise God. Always go up here. <coughs> and for those who would like to come and lay hands on Rose, I declare a fresh anointing on you, a release of what God has put within you. He's given you much. And he desires that you share it. I call forth the river of God to come flowing out of your belly. Out of the belly would flow rivers of living water. I call forth that waterfall to come uh, flowing out right now in Jesus' mighty name. Glory. <clears throat> Hallelujah. Well, we're getting warmed up good. So, Mark, now it's your turn. Um, who would like to lead off this morning? Barbara? Mark, I, I'm hearing that you should not be discouraged or frustrated. God isn't finished with you. Keep the faith and stay close to him. He has work for you to do, and, and he will show you. Be patient and he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you could ask or even think. Amen. I'm getting perseverance for you. A lot of times the hardest part of a journey is right before things get better or before something breaks through, you know. So um, don't be discouraged in that because God is with you through that and through everything. Okay, Mark, what I had for you was uh, to take one day at a time to listen for him, speak to you, and to live strong. And those are the three things that God gave me. And uh, I believe this is through uh, grace and peace being multiplied to you. Grace and peace to you. I feel like the Lord has a pattern here. Lots of peas. I got patience and I got um, peace. And I feel like everybody's kind of had some patience and peace all up in here. So it's going to be exciting. I have a verse for you. 
He who started the good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of salvation. Amen. Philippians 1.6, I believe. By the way, Barbara quoted uh, Ephesians 3.20. Mark, the word I got for you was strong. You are strong in the Lord and probably stronger than you think you are. So I have three scriptures here that I'm just going to give you so you can look them up and read them. Okay? Thank you. Amen. You haven't been with us very long. I see you coming and going. I, sometimes he puts us in a different mission field and I feel like that sometimes you aren't where you want to be in the mission field I, uh, but I see faithfulness in you and I see a strength in you that he's just building and he's, you're not floundering. He's building things in you that when you get back out there, you may not see it till you get back out there. But his wisdom will fill you. And his peace will fill you. And I believe that the Lord is going to blow you away. So get ready for that. Take care of yourself. And rest in him. I'm actually going to pray over you. Mark, right now, I call forth the destiny of God, the one that he created before the foundations of the earth. I call that forth in you. I say, Spirit of the living God, arise and shine in him, that the glory of the Lord would rise upon him. Father, right now, in the mighty name of Jesus, I ask for that uh, jacuzzi stuff that's stirring around in his spirit, that that would come forth right now in Jesus' name. I call forth that living water to come forth, Father. Father, we call that forth. We call the man of God to rise, to rise and stand in the place that you are calling him to, to be in. We pray, Father, that he wouldn't go to the right or the left, but exactly in the footsteps that you have ordered for him, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the first thing I got was Judges 14. I'm just going to let you do that all by yourself, because I couldn't figure that one out. But then he gave me Psalm 92. And Psalm 92, I'm not going to read it all. I'm going to read it where it starts. Um, when the wicked spring as the grass, and when all the workers of iniquity blossom, it is that they shall be destroyed forever. But you, Lord, are, are high forevermore. For lo, your enemies, O Lord, for lo, your enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered but my horn you shall lift up like a horn of a wild ox, and I shall be anointed with fresh oil. That's for you. Okay? 
and also my eyes shall see my desire on my enemies. And that's what I kept getting. There was a lot of people that you were dealing with that were against you, okay? And my ears shall hear the wicked who rise up against me, and the righteous shall flourish like the palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bring forth fruit in old age. They shall be fat and flowering. I'm fat and flowering. And uh, to show that the Lord is upright, <coughs> he is, that's, my, that's my scripture I stand on. Uh, <coughs> to show that the Lord is upright, he is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Um, uh, I used to go this thing called Emmaus it's with the Methodist Church. And one of the things that they said all the time was, you know, either use me or, or put me aside. But, you know, I'm always here ready for you. And I know that that's your heart before the Lord. You know, everybody that meets you knows that, uh, that you're waiting on him. And, I, and the other picture I got was, have you ever read High Speed on High Places? Okay. Well, it's Hannah Hernard, and it's, it's, it's kind of like a mini version of Pilgrim's Progress. But um, one of the things that happens is we see a mountain that's gorgeous, and we want to go over there. And we want to stand on that mountain and receive the glory that's on that we see shining on that mountain. Unfortunately, there's never a straight path to that mountain. It meanders, it goes into deep valleys because that's where the growth is, right? You know, in the valleys, not in the mountaintops. But your your heart has set uh, has set its eye on something that the Lord is going to give you, and this is your way to get there. And it's it it doesn't make sense sometimes, but God is, you know just laughs because he's God. I was reminded of a story, and I don't remember the whole story, but anyway, this guy was going on a journey, and there was this massive boulder in his way, and uh, every day he would go out and try and push this boulder out of his way. and kept trying to push it, kept trying to push it, and he got massive, huge, strong. And it was preparation for the end of his journey. And right now, that's exactly what God is doing with you. You feel like there's a boulder in your way that you can't get past. Well, God's preparing you for what's on the other side of that boulder. And God is that rock right now holding you in place, keeping you where you need to be so you can be prepared. So that when you get to the other side, you won't be overwhelmed. You'll have exactly what you need. And you'll just be able to cruise on through. Mark, I don't know that I have a prophetic word for you, but um, as I was praying for you this week, this passage from Ephesians 3 came to mind. Um, I'd like to read it to you out of the New Living Translation. And by the way, it's the 1996, the original edition. Beginning with this verse 14, when I think of the wisdom and scope of God's plan, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from his glorious, unlimited resources, he will give you mighty inner strength through his Holy Spirit. And I pray that Christ will be more and more at home in your heart as you trust in him. 
May your roots go down deep into the soil of God's marvelous love, and may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love really is. May you experience May you experience the love of Christ, though it is so great you will never fully understand it. Then you will be filled with the fullness of life and power that comes from God. So I've been praying that over you, and I believe there's something about the love of God that is perhaps more meaningful to you than other believers I don't understand that that's but anyway I've got this for you since it's hard to find these days Um, so I'll give this to you we already kind of prayed over Mark so does anybody else have anything Okay, I do have something. Father, I ask for release into the destiny that you have for Mark. God, I see him going to the nations. So, Father, we ask that you would fill him with your spirit, that he would be empowered supernaturally to walk in your power, in your grace in your mercy, that you'd fill him with love for the lost, fill him with love for people of other cultures and the ability to communicate clearly with them. Father, we pray that language skills would come supernaturally, that he would be able to communicate with people. Amen. Glory. Hallelujah. Well, um, at this point, I'd like to ask Barbara to come and share with us. And um, as I said before, service, Barbara, don't watch the clock. Keep your eyes on Jesus, and when he says you're done, you're done. But until then, if that's an hour from now, cool. I have to say from the time that we started singing the first song this morning, I could feel the presence of God come in here. So, praise his name. I saw something on Facebook yesterday that was posted by a pastor. And it's amazing how God pulls things together, isn't it? Um, He's just so marvelous. But this said, God will often disrupt your comfort to confront your dysfunction. And what touched me about that is 
that's the crux of what I'm going to share with you this morning. And um, I'm just always amazed. When I get to heaven, I'm going to say to him, show me how you did all that. And uh, I hope he does. Um, I have a question, and um, this is audience participation. Don't be shy. And my question is, what makes a good leader? You would know. Being a servant, okay? I'm sorry? Being a listener. Okay. <laughs> All right, being a servant, being a good listener. Leaders, according to Jewish sages, and by the way, I had fun with this this week. God put this, God put this message on my heart a month ago. And uh, I told the pastor that, you know, when the time was right, I would, I would do it. But I had fun pulling this together. Jewish leaders, I mean leaders, according to Jewish sages, were supposed to treat fellow Jews with patience and compassion, yet be willing to rebuke them. They had especially to be on their guard against arrogance and false pride. They had to worry about their reputations and how things were perceived by the people. The ultimate leadership crime was desecration of God's name and a leader had to have the ability to repent and self-correct. Leaders are also held accountable for the sins of the people if they fail to instruct the nation properly. Above all, Maimonides ruled that even a person of great wisdom could not hold a leadership position if he did not fear heaven. In what I'm gonna share with you, um, Judah is to become the leader of the kingdom of Judah in Israel. 22 kings are to come from his line. And at the outset, he doesn't treat his brother with patience and compassion. He exhibits arrogance and pride. He is worried about his reputation, as we'll see. He does not seem to be a godly man. It doesn't seem like he's a good leader at this point. But he does become the first person, person mentioned in the scriptures so far who repents and self-corrects. Now, of course, we're early on in the book of Genesis, so we haven't seen many. Um, he also becomes responsible for the fate of his brother Benjamin when at first he was responsible for the fate of his brother Joseph being sold into slavery. This, unfortunately, is where he first exhibits leadership qualities in taking the reins for the disposition of Joseph. You might remember his brothers wanted to um, throw him in the pit and Reuben was going to go and pull him out and take him back to his father and Judah said no let's do something else with him and all the brothers listened to him so you know be careful who you listen to um, after the division of the kingdom and the conquest of the north by the Assyrians the children of Abraham 
became known as Yehudim, or Jews. <laughs> For it was the tribe of Judah who dominated the kingdom of the south, and it was they who survived the Babylonian exile. So it was not Joseph, but Judah, who conferred his identity on the people. Judah, who became the ancestor of Israel's greatest king, David. Judah, from whom the Messiah was to be born. Now, the story of Judah is plunked right down in the middle of the story of Joseph. Genesis 37, in the last verse, says, and the Midianite traders picked up Joseph and took him to Egypt. And the first verse in Genesis 39 says, And the Midianite traders brought Joseph to Egypt. But the story of Judah is, is just plumped down in here all by itself and seems to be disconnected to 37 and 39. But in some ways, that's the Jewish way of storytelling. They will raise... Um, an interlude and, and tell something else. So it, it's really not all that uncommon in, in the Jewish way. The family of Jacob is soon to go down to Egypt, and Judah will become the head of the tribes, even though he wasn't the firstborn. The story of Judah and Tamar is told in Genesis 38, and it's messy. But there's a lot of messy stories in the Bible, right? But I see this story as a story of identities um, and of God's sovereign choices. Often when this story comes out of the pulpit, preachers will talk about how Tamar was disguising herself as a prostitute and she went and seduced Judah. Um, that's not really true. She did go after what God had for her. But Judah was the one who mistook her for a prostitute. The only thing the scripture says is that she put a veil over her face. Okay. Um, Judah was the progenitor of the Messiah. He wasn't perfect like any of those mentioned in the Matthew genealogy of Christ. David, Bathsheba, Rahab, and yes, Judah and Tamar. The thing that distinguishes Judah and all the others is that God chose them. God chose us as well. In John 15, 16, Jesus says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. That's part of our identity as chosen ones. God's choice for fulfillment of his purpose is not grounded in merit. It's grounded in his sovereignty. Chosen vessels aren't spared God's anger when they sin. But if they repent, they continue in God's good plan for them. Remember, God was going to kill Moses when he was on his way to Egypt to stand before Pharaoh. Exodus 4.24 says, And God waited for Moses on the way to kill him. Reason being, Moses was setting out to do God's work 
and he didn't have his own son circumcised. Enter his wife. <laughs> she circumcised the boys and took care of the problem. Okay? So God will correct us, and God did correct Judah. And sometimes he'll use the most unusual circumstances to pull us out of our comfort zone and, and disrupt our dysfunction. Judah was the fourth son of Jacob and Leah. His first three brothers lost the birthright through sin, except that Levi, the third son, inherited the priesthood. Again, God's choice. Moses and Aaron were from the tribe of Levi. Now, one more fact about Levi. Not only did he inherit the priesthood, he has a book of the Bible named for him. In Israel, the priesthood is still considered to be a great aristocracy. And in biblical times, the priesthood and the monarchy didn't intermix. Remember the story of Saul? He went and threw stuff on the altar, and God said, nah, you're done. But when Jesus dies and comes and resurrects, the priesthood transferred from Levi to Judah. Jesus is our high priest and king. But Judah must be changed in order to become the leader because God has chosen him. God uses people and circumstances to fulfill his own purpose and we're going to see the great change that happened in Judah. In Genesis chapter 38, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It's not my favorite one, but it's uh, most of us have it, I guess. In verse 1, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. Now, the children of Israel were told not to intermarry with the Canaanites. And this was his first mistake. He shouldn't have ought to done that. Verse 3, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Now, the Jews pronounced this name Shelah. Some others say Shelah. I refuse to call this man Shelah. So, take your pick. <laughs> Next verse, Judah was in Chizib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Now, it's believed that she was also a Canaanite. Um, I have not found anything anywhere about her lineage. I'm kind of thinking maybe she was, because if she were a Jew, while she might not have been named in any of the family lines, she would have come from one of the other children of Jacob or one of the children of, of Esau, somewhere down in there, which, again, wasn't uncommon for them to marry their cousins or whatever. But um, it's, it's assumed that she was a Canaanite and not a Jew. 
Verse 8, then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. Any offspring would have carried the name and the birthright of the older brother. That child or uh, that firstborn child would have literally taken the place of the first son. So it wasn't just a question of getting the birthright, it was getting the name and everything that would have been due to that first son. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he was put to death also. Now, remember, the descendants of Judah were going to be the ancestors of Messiah. So right at the outset, God is working on clearing whatever sin might have been there. He doesn't want a polluted gene pool for the birth of his son. So we don't know why God killed the first son, but that's God's choice. <laughs> God does what he wants to do, kind of, huh? So remember Moses. He chose Moses. He was going to kill Moses. Verse 11, then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Judah perceives Tamar as some sort of black widow. You know, everybody she, she marries dies. And in fact, it was his son's sins that killed them. Not, it wasn't his daughter-in-law. But remember, Judah married a Canaanite, and these boys had a Canaanite heritage. So, you know, it was not... None of them were very righteous at this point in time. The law hadn't been given. Um, there wasn't much appearance of, of a prophetic word at this time. So they were doing what people do. Um, verse 12, in the course of time, the wife of Judah died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. Now, when the, when the word says he was comforted here, that just means he fulfilled the period of his mourning, um, which came from tradition, I suppose. And not speaking in Judah's defense, but remember, he had lost a wife and two sons. So I'm sure he was grieving. Um, verse 13, And when Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat in the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him to marry. Tamar wanted what God had for her, didn't she? And she's going to get it. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute. He thought she was a prostitute. Okay, whatever you've heard about this being exposited, he thought she was a prostitute. Okay, we don't know how she was dressed, but excuse me. 
He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? And he answered, I will send a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it, dash, he said, What pledge shall I give you? Meaning, what is the price of your services? What do you charge? She said, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. Um, just like the signet, shepherd's staffs are unique. They would have had maybe a certain carving on top to identify the shepherd. Um, Gandalf in, in one, of the, um, one of the Tolkien stories tells Bilbo Baggins, a man and his walking stick are not soon parted. So I picture him everywhere he goes. He has the staff, which uniquely identifies him. It's, um, it's, it's told by some Bible teachers that what he gave her was the equivalent of his driver license and credit card, okay? And especially in the land of the sheep shearers, they would have known it was Judah. So she gave them, he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he didn't find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Anaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I haven't found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this goat, and you did not find her. Now, some versions say Judah said we'll be a laughingstock, and, and I want to ask, what did he think he was going to be laughed at for? The fact that he went with a prostitute? The fact that he tried to pay her and he couldn't find her? Oh, Judah's looking to pay this, you know, harlot here. Or the fact that somebody's running around with his personal identification. So here we see a little bit of pride and arrogance and a bit of self-righteousness in Judah, not really leadership qualities. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. I'm thinking he doesn't associate this pregnancy with what happened three months prior. And I don't get why he doesn't make the connection, um, but he doesn't. And he says, let her be burned. Now, this man has just gone out of his way to find a prostitute that, that he can pay. Honorable thing, but he slept with a prostitute. And yes, he was single at this point in time. But things aren't computing in Judah's head at this point. Verse 25, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, 
Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Now, she acts honorably here. And she doesn't throw him at his feet and say, these are yours, old boy. She was respectful, and she gave him a chance to identify them himself. And the rabbis conclude if Judah had not acknowledged his responsibility, Tamar was prepared to be burnt rather than publicly shame him. Now, I don't get that mindset, but it, it looks that way, doesn't it? I mean, she could have just accused him and, and said, well, you know, I'm not the only one here. God does usually give us a chance to repent through a spirit of conviction. Verse 26, then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous. That's not in the text. She is more righteous than I, since I didn't give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. Judah is the first example of repentance we see in Scripture, as I said before. And this is also the turning point in Judah's life. When the time came for her labor, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out and said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was Perez. You remember Jesus is called the repairer of the breach? Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. Now, we saw this with Jacob and Esau. Um, and, and the principle here is the last shall be first. But God chooses. Tamar had twins. God gave her double for all her trouble. And she received the blessing of two sons to replace the two husbands that she'd lost. In humbling himself to Tamar, Judah saved her and her unborn children. And unbeknownst to him, began the line that the Messiah was to come from. Because it wasn't until later on that Jacob spoke the blessing over Judah that, that he would be, that kings would come from his line. So at this point, you know, he didn't know what was, what was going to take place. And we're not told that he ever married Tamar. Some, um, some teachers say that she was at that point given to Shelah. But these two boys are mentioned in Judah's genealogy in, um, in the book of Chronicles, and they're, they're not mentioned in, in the line of his son. So he took responsibility, at least, in some ways, I'm sure. Tamar is listed in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew, and it is assumed she was a Canaanite, not a Jew. But then neither were Rahab and Ruth Jews. Again, God's choice. Having been listed in the genealogy, one could say God gave her her face back. You know the expression in, in the East, losing face? Okay. We see Tamar mentioned again in the book of Ruth at, at 412, 
at the marriage of Ruth and Boaz when the women blessed Boaz. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. Tamar was the seventh great-grandmother of King David. Now, let's flip back to Genesis 37 for a little backstory on Judah's character. I'm sure we know the story. Um, and I'll begin reading at verse 17 so we don't go through the whole book and the whole chapter. So Joseph went and after his brothers and found them at Dothan. And you know that Jacob had sent him to go spy on his brothers and take them food and, you know. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness. <laughs> it's interesting that that Reuben says this. Um, he did not conspire with Simeon and Levi to, to complete the massacre that they did after they found out their sister was molested. But he knew about it. He was the firstborn, and, and he had to have known. So he comes up to Joseph's defense and said, let's not kill him. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. I don't know why that's in there. Maybe pits were always full of water or something there. Verse 25 says, Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan coming their way down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listen to him. He's proposing to sell his youngest brother at that time into slavery. And then out of, out of his, the other side of his mouth, he says, because he's our brother, let's not kill him. Well, when, when he said, let's not kill him, they knew that, you know, they kind of considered that he had a plan to sell him into slavery. But this is uncompromised callousness on the part of Judah. You, you're, we're beginning to see some of his heart here. He is a cold dude. Um, and then he says, let's see what kind of money we can make off of him. Now, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but the Jews are known for their money-making prowess, investing and, and financier and all that kind of stuff. So this may have been where it started. I don't know. <laughs> they do know how to turn a dollar. And at this point, Judah is the last person uh, that we would expect great things from. Additionally, he shows absolutely no regard for his father. Um, I really don't think Jacob 
was a model father, I think it was pretty well known in the family that his favorite was Joseph. And he may have neglected the upbringing and the love and care of the other boys on behalf of Joseph because he was the first son of Leah and Jacob loved Leah. So there may not have been a great deal of, of love and companionship. So Judah here shows not only a, a coldness and, and lack of compassion for Joseph, but also for his father. Um, verse 28, Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Now Judah's name in Greek is Judas. And during a meal, they sell him for 20 shekels of silver. Is that a foreshadow of, of what happened later in the Bible? Hmm. The, the path to evil is very easy. Um, the gate is wide open, and the devil knows how to strike. He knows when his opportunities are ripe. And at this point, I don't know whether the devil knew that Judah was going to be the leader of the pack or not. Again, the blessing hadn't been given, but the devil doesn't like anybody. So, you know, he found an opportunity and he took it. Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. Now, they go back and they tell Jacob, this is your son's robe and your son's blood. I don't see that happening today. With our science, (laughs) we have blood typing, we have DNA, and... You know, if somebody brought my kids' clothes to me dipped in blood and said, you know, I'm calling CSI, okay? But they didn't have that in this day. Verse 33, Jacob identified the robe and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son. Now, down in verse 36, it says, Meanwhile, Joseph was sold in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard. Now, switching over to Genesis 42, the brothers now have their own opportunity to go down to Egypt. Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing, um, but when a famine develops in the land, Jacob tells his boys to go down and buy grain in Egypt. And ten of the brothers go, but Jacob doesn't send Benjamin. By this time, Benjamin may have been the same age as Joseph was when he lost him. Some scholars say that it was 17 years hence. Some say it was 20 years later. Um, In any case, Benjamin is grown, pretty much. By this time, Joseph has become viceroy to the pharaoh which we all know, the second in command. When his brothers came and bowed before him, he recognizes them and treats them like strangers and speaks roughly to them, and he accuses them of being spies. 
They tell him they're all brothers and they came to buy food and basically spill their guts about the family business. Now, if you read this, Joseph does say, well, tell me about yourselves. But he doesn't, you know, he does, they give him more details than he asked for. Then he says, let one of your brothers stay here and let the rest go and take grain for your households and bring your youngest brother to me to prove you're not lying. Now, these guys didn't have a clue. It didn't occur to them at all why this leader in Egypt would have not only wanted to know about their family, but accuse them of being spies and, and then asking them to bring the other brother back. For all they knew, you know, they were bringing, people were bringing their money and getting grain and bringing their money and getting grain. And, and they, of course, don't know this is Joseph. They probably have forgotten all about him by now. So he says to them, let one of your brothers stay here and bring your youngest brother back with you to prove that you're not lying. And he took Simeon from them and kept him as a hostage. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to put their money back in the sacks. And when they stopped to, to feed their donkeys or for the night or whatever, they found the money um, that had been in the sacks. And what they say is, what is this that God has done to us? Now, I know we're all mature here, and we don't accuse God when something bad happens to us. I know all of us say, what have I done to deserve this? We don't, you know. But this is the first mention of God in relations with men as well. Now, moving to chapter 43, Jacob sends them back to Egypt when the, when the food runs out. And Judah said, if you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. Remember, Joseph wants to see Benjamin. Okay. But if you will not send him, we won't go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Now, at this point, Jacob is having apoplexy. He's recalling what happened to his other son at the hands of these boys, men. And how would you feel? I mean, I, I think I probably would be a little bit nervous. But Judah offers to see that nothing will happen to Benjamin. So here we see the first little bit of a leader coming out. He goes to bat for somebody else. Now, in chapter 44, they return with Benjamin. And this time, Joseph gives him the grain, and he happens to give Benjamin five times more than he gave the other men. But he tells his steward to plant his silver cup into Benjamin's sack. Yeah, set up. Mm-hmm, set up. Do did, did you get the idea Joseph wants to be reunited with his family? Now, Judah was humble enough when it came to saving his own skin back with Tamar. Let's see what he does here. And we do that too. I mean, if, if we're confronted or, you know, we're going to be lifted out of our comfort zone in order for God to, you know, deal with our dysfunction, 
We'll say, okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I did it. It was me. I'm sorry. But here it comes to humbling himself for somebody else, which, remember what he was the, he was the leader of, of what happened to Joseph in the first place. So they bring them all back to Egypt, and they find the silver cup in Benjamin's sack. Now they are uber panicked, okay? They couldn't have been more distressed. And Joseph threatens to keep Benjamin and make him his servant. Now, here comes Judah. His humility shows something happened to him over the previous amount of time. And he goes the second mile, and he's willing now to be a substitute for Benjamin. He does a complete 180. He is totally different than he was before. He had no qualms about anything he did. So now he stands before Zaphneth Penea. Do you know who that is? That's the, Hebrew, uh, the Egyptian name that was given to Joseph. Been easier if they'd have called him Joseph and left his own name, but makes you wonder what his nickname was. <laughs> makes me wonder. That name means savior of the world. I know, that's pretty cool. But he was at this point. You know, Egypt was the most advanced civilization at that time, and, and that, you know, that whole area in there, that was the known world for them. It's through Joseph now that God's plan is carried out. What Judah doesn't know is that he's standing before Joseph, whose identity is still concealed. And while there's not a general confession here regarding what he did to Joseph, the change in his heart is evident. Um, he doesn't say anything, doesn't come against him, like, why I oughta, you know, some of us might be tempted to do that because these guys, they're going around and around and around and, and Joseph is still playing them. He submits to Joseph with utmost respect and humility and we see in his prayer in, um, in Genesis 44, starting at verse 18, then Judah went up to him and said, O oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said, My Lord, we have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, 
We cannot go down if our youngest brother goes with us, doesn't go with us. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil unto Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please, let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers, for how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Joseph, based, uh, Judah basically tells Joseph here, hey, we've done everything you ask us to do. You said go, and we went. You said come, and we came. You said bring your brother, and we brought our brother. And he asks then for him to honor his request. He said, we listen to you, listen to us. But if you'll notice, he does this with the absolute utmost respect and, and supplication and humility. And it appears in this rendering that he has also had a change of heart towards his father, which he didn't give a rip before. You know, his thought was probably, let him suffer a little bit. Eh, what do I care? Now he's had a complete change of heart, and this began with Tamar. Then, of course, Joseph reveals himself, and, and his brothers are flabbergasted, and they go back and get Jacob, and they all live happily ever after. So, now what? What does this mean? us if if we're going to be an apostolic resource center we need to not break down back down from situations in which God is seeking to refine us or to lodge us out of our comfort zone even if it appears that he uses somebody who's not in our league you know sometimes God will use people who you know, we might look at and say, well, he's not as mature as I am. Why do I have to listen to him? Well, try it, you know, because it just might be the voice of the Lord. And, and I've heard Billy Graham and a lot of other people talk about how God corrected him through the cleaning lady or, or something like that. So we need to have our ears on because God has chosen us. Okay, God chose us because he set his love on us while we were yet sinners. And the Bible says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. 
Um, Pastor has been talking to us about love, and, and we've seen in this story how God really worked in the heart of Judah. Um, man, he was cold at the beginning. He, you know, he didn't care about anybody but himself. He didn't care about his brother. He didn't care about his father. Um, you know, he may have even had a little low self-esteem, but he didn't know who he was in God not making excuses for him. But when the opportunity presented itself, he allowed God to change him. And interestingly enough, as I was reading all these scriptures, I didn't seem to see a change in Jacob's heart. You know, he's still pretty self-centered. He's still worrying about his younger son. He's still probably hasn't really completed a proper mourning um, for Rachel because he loved her first and loved her best. So sometimes we have to put aside the hurts. We have to forgive the transgressors. And we have to let God heal the pain of the transgression. There used to be a, there used to be a ministry around way long ago, and I'm old, so I can remember this, but that it used to be called healing the memories, or, you know, the memory's permanent. You can't heal memories. But God can heal the pain of the memory, so that if we have an issue, if we give it to God and, and put it in God's hands, which Judah may have done, God will heal the pain, and when the memory comes back, we're not, we're not consumed with the pain of it. We can talk about the people. We can talk about, um, you know, I will share one little personal story really quick. I have a son who is 52. He lives in Virginia. He has all three of my grandchildren, and he and I have been estranged for five years. And I mean, it was bad. And I couldn't handle the stress of that strained relationship. We didn't speak. And I have a granddaughter whom I've never met. She's now six years old. And, you know, the story's common. Everybody has problems in their families. And one day I just said to the Lord, I said, I'm giving this to you. I cannot handle this anymore. I can't handle the pain. And I knew that I had forgiven him. I mean, I knew that in my heart. And we know when we forgive somebody. And I said, I just, I can't deal with this anymore. Take it. And I said, if this relationship is never reconciled, that's okay. You're in charge. Well, lately, my daughter-in-law, not my son, my daughter-in-law has begun sending me pictures, the kids' school pictures at Christmas time. And uh, recently... Last week, my ex-husband had surgery on his head, and my daughter-in-law took a day off work to spend with him in the hospital. And my son is in interviews for a job in Colorado Springs. He lives in Alexandria, Virginia. So my daughter-in-law is keeping me posted on it. You know, he's had three interviews, and they sent him an email. Well, here's how I'm praying. God, I want your will, but let this be your will. So, um, God will change our hearts. And, and like Judah, 
we'll become people sometimes that we don't even recognize. So let his bulldozer, <laughs> my mentor used to say, let his bulldozer begin in us and, and let that love come up. In Jesus' name, amen.